On this episode of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, we have Jamie Anderson. She's a medical speech language pathologist and board certified by the Academy of Neurogenic Communication Disorders. She has 10 years of experience across medical settings. She currently evaluates and treats complex multi-phase swallowing voice, upper airway, and motor speech disorders and a multidisciplinary team at the University of South Florida Joy McCann Culver House Center for Swallowing Disorders in Tampa, Florida. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and founder of the MetaSLP Collective and MetaSLP Education. This podcast is dedicated to delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere, while also recognizing that medical SLPs everywhere are doing the best with what they've got. Whether you are a new clinician seeking tangible tools for therapy or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is simple, to help you advance your practice without feeling overwhelmed or underappreciated. This means that together we'll build confidence, broaden your knowledge, and reignite your passion for our field. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride and be open to new ideas because at the end of the day, you and your patients deserve that kind of support. With that, let's dive in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. All right. Good afternoon, Jamie. Hi. How's it going? Thank you so much for joining me. I'm super happy to be here. All right. So tell the people a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So I just celebrated my 10-year anniversary of being a speech-language pathologist, which, of course, is really cliche, but time goes by really fast. I graduated from Florida State. I moved to Houston, Texas for my clinical fellowship. I worked there, MD Anderson Cancer Center, for six years, finished my clinical fellowship, and kept working there. I specialize in patients with cancer, specifically brain tumors, worked with a great team of neurosurgeons, speech pathologists, neuropsychologists that are still doing amazing work now and interoperative awake craniotomy, but also worked in swallowing and cognitive communication and all that good stuff. I moved back to Florida in 2019, had a short stint in South Florida, and then I just, I guess not just, now two and a half years ago, joined the Swallowing Center. So I'm now at the University of South Florida Center for Swallowing Disorders. Yeah, happy to be here. Awesome. Love it. Okay. So where do we want to start today? Because I know you're sort of like cognitive TBI type person, but then now you're also working in the swallowing realm. So let's talk about that. (laughs) That's a great transition to get into it. So yeah, I've definitely dabbled in a lot of different things and I that's a whole other conversation, but I do totally encourage people to allow themselves to have different chapters in their life. I, you know, definitely had the chapter of the awake craniotomies and brain tumors, and I can talk to you about that for hours on end and motor speech disorders, and then many different things over the years. So I definitely encourage people to allow themselves to rebrand or change directions and, you know, follow where things take you. If you asked me two years or three years ago or five years ago or 10 years ago, do you think you'll be at a swallowing center? I would have laughed. I would have said, no, I really, no, I wouldn't be. So that transitions into also, if you would have asked me, you know, do you want to talk about functional neurological disorders? About two years ago, I would have said, what? Uh Uh-huh. What is that? (laughs) So I, to start this conversation, just kind of painting the picture, when I started the Swallowing Center, I was fully prepared to work with patients with 
really complex dysphagia and different swallowing problems, do tra- treatment. You know, I felt like I had really great mentorship at MD Anderson Cancer Center that I, I was ready to see it all. What I wasn't prepared for were these patients that had these significant swallowing complaints, right? We see them, they have seen GI, they've seen ENT, they've seen neuro. We do the interview, they fill out a patient report outcome. They say on their ET10, you know, which is out of 40, 40 out of 40, a severe swallowing problem. They're saying, oh my God, 33 out of 40, I can't eat or drink anything. They may only be eating purees. They only may only liquids, can't, haven't had solid foods in years, might be on FMLA. They can't work. You do the swallow study and it's pretty unremarkable. So what do you do then? Right. And I know on this podcast, it was a couple of years ago, but you had Christina Kong on. And so then there's muscle tension dysphagia. And so a couple of years ago, I remember like, oh, okay, muscle tension dysphagia. Like that's what it is. And absolutely. I mean, her work is wonderful, but I started to see other ones that didn't fit that criteria. Like that has its own specific criteria. I, one, didn't know what to call it. I, two, didn't know how to treat it. I think previously, and I think many of us will say, hey, congratulations, you have a normal swallow. Good luck. Like, you know, great. Like, eat and drink. Just do it. And it's like, why not? But for many of these patients, that's not enough, right? Just saying, hey, your swallow looks great. Enjoy your life. And so a couple of years ago, I really went on like a deep dive and learned a ton which is what I want to chat with you about today. Yay. I love that. All right. I love this, Jamie, because I think these are so many questions that so many SLPs that are just really immersed in swallowing are just like, there's something else here. Like there's something that isn't making sense or something that's not going by the textbook definition of X, Y, Z. So yeah, exactly. (laughs) I'm excited to dive in. Okay. Where do you you want to start? Yeah. So really where I started is and I don't know if I'm the only crazy person to do this, but anytime I want to learn more about something, I submit it for ASHA. <laughs> so I, because then I know I'm just going to dedicate myself to learning as... That's a, that's a great like cheat code, honestly. Yes, I love that. A hundred percent. Like I think I push myself to teach it because I think if you don't know how to communicate it in like layman's terms, if you can't answer the questions then yeah, like, and when you prepare yourself through a PowerPoint presentation, especially like, this is what's going to be so interesting here is I'm such a PowerPoint presentation gal. Like I'm going to organize this and this is, you know, tab one, tab two, tab three. And so doing a podcast is totally out of my comfort zone from that standpoint. But when I did Joy Gaziano, my colleague and I did a two-part presentation at ASHA. And the first part, was functional dysphagia, oral pharyngeal manifestations. And the second part was functional dysphagia, esophageal manifestations. So what I did in my presentation is I just posed, you know, the major questions. What do you call it? What causes it? How do I diagnose it? Are there kind of subtypes in this arena? And then how do I treat it? So, I mean, from those conversations, I'm going to pose you, I'm going to switch the podcast back to you. I would say, like, what are the names that you've heard to call these, like, you know, swallowing problems? This patient comes in with a significant swallowing problem, but you do the x-ray and it's pretty unremarkable. You don't, it doesn't match up. Like, what would you 
possibly consider? Yeah. I, I I mean, I think from that standpoint, like my brain goes to like med management or not like, like medical management. Like, is there a reflux here? Or like, is there other things that are, that I'm not seeing within my lens that other people with maybe more substantial knowledge or access to bigger tests would be able to figure out? Absolutely. Yes. And I love that because then I, to answer that, then you are talking about the GI definition for this and the GI definition for a swallowing problem that is not explained uh, is called functional dysphagia. And it's described from the Rome criteria, the Rome Foundation. And it's this great group. It's a group of scientists and researchers that really just study these quote-unquote functional disorders, or to make it more confusing, and yes, this nomenclature just constantly is changing, but they call it disorders of gut-brain interaction. In that diagnosis, it is described as like food feeling stuck. Specifically, they say the esophagus, so it's not specific to oral pharynx, although a lot of research will say we can take this, but it says it cannot we have to exclude other things. So your where your brain is going is exactly right. You can't just jump to a functional dysphagia or this normal diagnosis without thinking about these other things that could be there. So from a GI standpoint, it's saying like no esophageal mucosal irregularity. So there's no GERD, there's no inflammatory disease like EOE, there's no strictures, there's no motility disorder. So it's all three of those. It's like you have to have like an EGD, a manometry, manometry being that motility study to assess the esophagus, barium swallow study. So for them, before you can even get to this diagnosis, you have to exclude it, right? You have to say it's not these other things. So now going back to like our example case, my person's 8, 10, 33 out of 40, and you look at their records and they've had an EGD and it says it's normal, maybe even had a dilation, right? And said no improvement. They had an esophageal manometry and it says no motility disorder. So no achalasia, no ineffective esophageal motility, no jackhammer, any of those, the esophagus, the peristalsis is working well. They've had a barium esophagram, let's say too. And so no shot skis rings, no hiatal hernias. So from GI perspective, we're looking pretty good. So now what? Who knew that after 5 p.m. I'm going to make you think. (laughs) I know. I mean, I don't, I don't know it. And, and here's honestly my first response. In, and, and I hate this. I hate that this is my response because I think now the response is it depends on what your setting allows you to do at this point. Like, I think we have so much red tape and so many limitations around what we're allowed to do. Like, and I think so many people think, okay, well, we can't solve your problem. So we'll discharge you, which I absolutely, like, I hate that I'm saying this. Yeah. But I think this is a lot of- No, no, but I love the honest conversation. Yeah. And this is a lot of like, people will write in and say like, well, that's all well and good, Teresa. But like, if I don't find anything, like my DOR won't just allow me to justify continuing to find a needle in a haystack that may not exist. Yeah. And everyone can't see me right now, but I'm like nodding with all the sorts of excitement. Right. Because like then, so you need something, right. You need, you can't just say normal swallow. Let's do swallow therapy. Right. So if we've excluded it, meaning like we feel like GI has seen them, if we've excluded it from the standpoint, of course, like we also have to exclude that we don't think that there's something like neurogenic going on. So I always use, you know, examples of I've had patients come in and they say like, oh, functional, you know, swallow or functional dysphagia. I do a cranial nerve exam. I see lingual fasciculations. The patient has pseudobulbar affect. Hello. Send them to neuro and they have ALS. So like, 
our exam will also kind of help exclude. But let's say that then we have those exclusionary components. What do I document or what can I say that can even kind of justify one it, saying anything besides you have a normal swallow? Hello, goodbye. And two, you have something that I can help you with, right? So one, I definitely think that those patient reported outcomes, I do the eat 10, it really takes 15 seconds and I think can make a huge difference. And then there you go, you have that quality of life standpoint. But then you start to get into within functional disorders, this concept of inclusionary criteria. So when I filled out, you know, you ask, what is the game changing article for me? And in this arena, without a doubt, if you do not want to listen to me talk anymore, just stop right now and go to it's Baker at all 2021. It's a consensus paper on the role of the speech pathologist working in functional disorders, not just functional dysphagia, functional swallowing impairments, but all sorts of functional disorders. So we're saying, you know, you can even put, you've had somebody on the podcast talking about inducible laryngeal obstruction. You could put that under that uh, criteria, uh, a chronic cough. You can put that under this criteria. Really big now is functional speech disorders like functional stuttering. You could put this under this criteria. And they push in this arena, we've already excluded, they actually believe and can push that you can achieve diagnosis based off of inclusionary diagnosis. So I have a dot phrase. Anyone can email me. I will send it to them or just go to the, this article. It's based off of that. But in the dot phrase, I have a second paragraph that says patient presents with functional dysphagia. Inclusionary criteria includes exam is inconsistent with patient, you know, symptoms. So eat 10 is, you know, 33 out of 40, but I have a normal swallow study. Patient symptoms is internally inconsistent. So meaning it changes with small talk or it changes with suggestibility. If I start talking about the symptoms more, they have more of a problem. The easier way to think about that is with like functional stuttering. If you've ever seen somebody that comes in and you're like, wait a second, you just started stuttering and now you're not stuttering. Now you are stuttering. So if I distract you, you stop stuttering. And then all of a sudden I bring it, you know, the stuttering up and you start stuttering significantly. Right. And is associated. So number one, number two, number three, it's associated with inefficient movement. So from a functional dysphagia standpoint, we're talking about that muscle tension, like that work from like Christina Kong, that you have these like head jutting, like tongue pumping, these ergonomic, inefficient movements for swallowing, like what that's not the, this, the way that swallowing is best used, if you will. So you can then, based off of that, have this inclusionary criteria to actually get to a diagnosis other than you're normal, but you're bothered. So let me work with you. Yeah, I, I love that. I did love something that you said about the patient reported outcome measures. I don't think we do a good job of including those and really including the weight that they can hold. You know, I think it's like, okay, well, we didn't see anything on the modified or we didn't see anything on the fees. So sorry, you're SOL. But I think there is such, you know, I used to always do like the reflux finding score. I used to do the E10 too. And I think, I mean, now we have just so many more that I think using those is really pretty powerful and being able to build a case to justify to your DOR or to anybody in administration why you need to continue to pursue help for this patient. Yeah. And for these people, again, I mean, I think when I started working with these patients, I'm like, oh, come on, like you can, swell. you know, this is like the most unempathetic answer, but it's like, oh, I've worked with patients with, you know, late radiation associated dysphagia. And I'm like, man, they can't swallow. Like we really need to work with them. But what are you trying to gain with those patients? You want to improve their quality of life and you want to liberate their diet right? And you want to avoid the feeding tube. 
guess what? Those are all the same goals that you're doing for these patients. I have had patients NPO feeding tube. I have had patients on liquids only for two to three years. So their voice scale is terrible. Their eat 10 is terrible. So if you need those numbers and the voice is not something that they have to, you just do, right? The functional oral intake scale right there. There's your goals. I need to improve quality of life. I need that eat 10 to be improved. I need to increase, liberate their diet. I need their, their voice to improve. And from a diagnosis code standpoint, functional dysphagia pops up. It's right there. So it's not this like, well, where is it? It's not based off that's yeah. It's, it's one that you can click and, and add to your, your paper. So I don't know. I, and I, I know every institution is different. I personally haven't had any issues with like having functional dysphagia. I think another way around it is these patients all have oral phase dysphagia because the way that they swallow, they do bolus holding. They, they like can't initiate their swallow. Like when you do it, when I say unremarkable MBS, it's, it is remarkable in different ways. They're safe. They're efficient from a pharyngeal standpoint, but from an oral standpoint, it takes them a minute just to get their swallow going, right? I think one of the things that you said about functional dysphagia coming up is something that you can bill. I do know that in the nursing homes, there was a few nursing homes that I did work at that because of their MAP, they would not reimburse for that code. So that is something to consider. Like if you're listening to this, just start billing that, like check and make sure that it's something that can be reimbursed first. And then if not oral dysphagia, like I really like you're, you're not nibbing, you're not making it up. Like there is an oral phase problem. Yeah. And then, and on that point, like I would describe my son as someone who has functional dysphagia, right? Like we did, we did as modified. It was totally fine. Right. But same thing. It's completely inefficient. Like takes him 10 minutes to chew a piece of meat. Like he would never get, he, the kid would never get any calories if we just did quote unquote, a regular diet, you know, it's just very inefficient. So from a functional standpoint, he eats and drinks by mouth just fine. But from an efficiency standpoint, it's absolutely terrible. So, and there's another goal, right? Like your goal for your son then is to reduce your, the meal times, right? Like, cause then that takes way too long. Yeah. Yeah. And then the last thing I wanted to say was I started talking about sort of how I feel like SLPs have created this ecosystem and we need to be more part of the ecosystem. Like we wanted to be recognized, right? We we want people to understand our value and what we can do in these healthcare facilities. And I think we've gotten that, but I think a byproduct of that is we've sort of separated ourselves like, oh, I'm consult only, only call me in when you might need me instead of having a seat at the table, working with the interdisciplinary team. So I think this is where this comes into play, because I think if you can prove with the patient-reported outcome measures, hey, this is an actual quality issue here. And if your facility monitors patient safety and quality, this may be a way to get more buy-in from people in the facility in the higher-ups, because it is something that they are tracking. Interesting. I'm trying to think through that concept. I mean, when you were saying this, I don't know, the silo, what stood out to me, what you were saying is, clinicians are nowadays, I only do X, Y, Z, right? And not just like consult only, but like, that's where I am now. I never knew that I would be primarily seeing these multi-phase dysphagias or these functional disorders. And I could have said, no, (laughs) like, no, I'm this person. I only do this. And, you know, a lot of times there is, there is an important piece to, knowing what you can do and what you can't do, right? What, what you're a specialty at and what you're not. I just worked with somebody on a, with a, a voice problem. We went through therapy and I felt like I'm 
reached the capacity of what my expertise could do. And so I sent to somebody, another speech pathologist that I think is awesome. And I'm like, hey, can you help me? Because I think you might be able to do something that I'm not doing. But I don't know, that might be a little bit different than what you're describing. But I think same thing with this. I think just because you're not, this is not your thing, quote unquote, like this patient is seeing you and we can't just keep bouncing them around being like, oh, well, I only see patients with head and neck cancer and dysphagia. And that is it. Well, if you work at a cancer hospital, totally understand. Otherwise, we're seeing patients like we need to meet them with where they're at. I don't know. That might be a total different side. <laughs> yeah, I, I just think it's assimilating better into your healthcare system. Like, okay, you have this patient that has functional dysphagia. We have these horrible quality measures on them, right? We can't find any specifically, but we have these horrible quality measures. Let's be part of the interdisciplinary team. Let's talk to other people. Let's not just say, I did my job. There's nothing else I can do. Sorry, tough nuggies. Like, how can we get a seat at this interdisciplinary table? Have these conversations like, hey, everybody in the room, this is what I'm seeing. What other brains can come into play here? And then also speaking to those terms that administration wants to hear. Like, okay, this is a patient safety and quality issue. So we need to solve it. We can't just send this home and tell them, sorry, you just spent two weeks at the hospital. We found nothing. You're SOL. We didn't fix you at all. Good luck. Or I think the big one is, oh, well, obviously this is a psych problem, right? Oh, this is a counseling problem. I'm not a counselor. Like they should go and see there, that there's a reason that within ASHA, there's a new special interest group that's for counseling. And it's because like, our role is so important. I, in the Rome Foundation, they have a group of gastropsychologists and their whole job is literally doing psychology for patients with these like functional GI disorders. So it could be functional chest pain, you know, IBS. I mean, so many different things. But when I brought up with them, I'm like, hey, I'm a speech pathologist. I'm just curious, how do you feel about me doing education and counseling arousal modification, biofeedback with these patients so that they can get back to a regular diet. And they were like, that's everything that we do, but it makes sense that you're doing it because you're actually the expert in the swallow. So you know how to modify and how to adjust it and how to teach it. So yes, please keep doing that, you know, versus, oh no, that's our thing. Stop it. We need to be okay with also like trying, especially with these patients. I just get so frustrated that these patients are bounced around. And I'm not saying all of them, you know, end beautifully, not, you know, unfortunately that's not the case, but give it a shot, give it, you know, the patient's fair and, and tell them, I think if you say, Hey, I've never done this before, but read that article, <laughs> message me. And I do that a lot for other functional disorders. There's super gastric belching, rumination syndrome, aerophasia. Those are functional GI disorders I have never worked with before. Fortunately, I had a, have a wonderful mentor, Joy Gaziano, who taught me. And then now I get emails, you know, every couple of months that are saying, hey, I saw you talk on functional belching once. Can you talk? me? Yes. Give, here's my number. Give me a call. Like, I don't live in Chicago. Let's just do it. Let's go. This is what I would do. You know, I don't know. If, if the patient has a problem, try it, you know. I love what you said about just calling the psychologist because I think a lot of times we just fight for our own limitations instead of reaching out and see what they would say. Like we might call them and say, hey, this is thinking. And they may say, whoa, hands off. That's within our scope of practice. Please don't touch. But in your situation, they said, great, go. Like, and I, and I think we can't make up our own narrative in our head without consulting these other people. Yeah, I, I, that being said, 
you know, you brought up like, what are the limitations or what are the abilities of what you can do in an institution? And I just fear that in some of this conversations that every person's going to hear be like, well, I don't have time for every single patient to call the psychologist, call the gastroenterologist, call for every patient that like I'm unsure about. I think that there are diagnostic criteria that can be met based off of like, I've shared the articles with you, but like disease 2016 gives you the diagnosis for the functional dysphagia that, that kind of tells you the exclusionary criteria. And then the Baker et al. paper helps you with the inclusionary criteria. I urge people to don't do anything that's obviously going to hurt a patient, but I don't know. I just like don't immediately throw in the towel and be like, well, this is somebody else because I think that that's, it's just like the easy way out. I don't know. But the outcomes that I've had for some of these people are absolutely remarkable. I had a patient who had, and this is a big component, just because you have a functional disorder does not mean that you don't also have some level of dysphagia. So I had a person who had a functional disorder, but she also had like ineffective esophageal motility. If anyone knows about ineffective esophageal motility, it means that 70% of your peristalsis, your, your swallows, your esophageal swallows are weak. So they're under a certain number that, you know, says that this squeeze, this peristalsis is not very strong. With that, there's like nothing that GI can do, like nothing. So it just like, Half the time your swallow, your your esophagus is not squeezing really well. Well, the only thing that you can do is behavioral modification. You take liquid washes, you slow your rate, you chew your food well and so forth. Well, because of what happens like lower down, you start to become hypersensitive. Like every bite, oh my gosh, it, I think it's stuck. I think it's stuck. Even though it's not like really stuck, you become like hypervigilant. That's all you think about. Oh gosh, is it going to happen again? Is it going to happen? And those things create this functional dysphagia, right? So you can actually have both. And so this is this patient and we went through our protocol and I remember it was one of my first patients that I had ever worked with. And I absolutely went through the whole process going like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know if I'm going to help this person. But we just, every step, I just try to figure out, I met her with where she was, again, went through some of these articles for for ideas. And in the end, she went back to a pretty regular diet. She was taking liquids through a teaspoon and now drinking from a cup. Now it was only eating six things. Now she's eating, you know, dozens of things. I just think like what on paper, just because like they're not grossly aspirating or there's not food stuck in the pharynx, we think that then there's nothing that can, that we can do for them. But it's actually like, sometimes it's so nice because it's like some of the patients that we actually can do something for. And like those other patients, we sometimes, you know, hit a brick wall. So. All right. Well, let's talk about what you can do for some of these patients. So from a therapeutic standpoint, really in any functional disorder, it's, education and counseling. So much education and counseling. Name the disease, you claim the disease. You specifically say, hey, you have a functional neurological disorder with swallowing symptoms, or you have functional dysphagia, or you have muscle tension dysphagia, or phagophobia. That's another one that you can consider, fear of swallowing. And I wasn't sure when you were talking about your son, like avoidant restrictive food intake disorder that doesn't only impact kids, but also adults. So you have this disorder. This is why 
I think that this is what I see on, on imaging, lots of counseling. Again, that Baker at all goes through a beautiful, like way of different ways that you can educate the patient. One of the best or most popular ways is the idea of like software versus hardware. So hardware is your computer, your mouse, your keyboard. And you can say, Hey, the hardware is working. There's nothing wrong with the keyboard. There's nothing wrong with the mouse. There's nothing wrong. Like the desktop turns on, but the software is glitching. When I open up Microsoft Word, it's not, it keeps ending. Describing other symptoms that are similar to functional, like swallowing disorders or functional disorders. Like when I talk, do public presentations, I get really dry in my mouth. Like you can't tell me I'm not. So I'm drinking water all the time. Or people have a stomach ache because they're nervous. If they did a test on their stomach, it's normal, but those symptoms are really real. And of course, like lump in the throat, you, you get really emotional. There's nothing in your throat, but you hold that tension. You hold that feeling there. So education and counseling, sometimes going over all those exclusionary criteria, sometimes going over, it depends on the patient. I've definitely pulled out some like neuro papers where I'm like, this is so fascinating, where functional imaging studies demonstrate that your brain is acting differently. Yeah. So like, for example, functional paralysis. So again, this is not just for speech pathology. It's functional paralysis, functional epilepsy. There's so many different things. They've done studies and they've looked at the brain. Oh, good. I think from that sort of psychological standpoint, that makes so much sense. And like when I wrote my book, gosh, when I wrote that like one to two years ago, I did include, like I got pushback from some people that helped me edit it. Like they're like, do you even want to go there about this? And I'm like, I do, because there's enough people that complain And was funny enough, I actually had a a hypnotherapist call me. I get so many people that come to me that speech pathologists have dismissed or discharged. They have this fear of swallowing and she's like, and it's clearly this neurological issue that's stopping them. And it's so interesting that you're saying that there's actual imaging to show that the body does something different there. Yeah. So the two different ones they talk about, I don't have the reference for the paralysis one, but that one was just interesting because they had patients with functional paralysis and they compared them to patients who were told to pretend like their leg is paralyzed. And they demonstrated that the brain was very different. So just proving that these patients are not malingering. They're not like consciously sitting there being like, I'm going to pretend like my leg doesn't work. And there's one article, it's Suntrup et al. And it was 2014. This one is a very small group, but they actually found that the areas of the brain for like hypervigilance were way increased. So meaning that they're constantly thinking about swallowing. And then the areas of the brain that helps to really integrate sensory and motor function was super decreased. So that ability to initiate the swallow, to get it going was decreased. So on fMRI, there was neurological manifestations that were happening. So this is, again, it's not something that like they're not malingering and there really is like a quote unquote software problem going on. Yeah, that gets into a whole thing on like what causes it. And I think knowing what can cause it can help you with that education and counseling. The one that I also talk about is the biopsychosocial model. And so with the biopsychosocial model, there's predisposing, precipitating, and perpetuating factors. And they could be biological. So a precipitating factor that's biological could be this patient had a Schatzky's ring before, so they had a stricture or they had like jackhammer esophagus before. And although it's treated, is a history of a swallowing problem, that trauma is there. 
they're more likely to have a functional problem. A patient who had a stroke who needed swallowing therapy 10, 15 years ago, more likely to have a functional swallowing problem. Precipitating, predisposing. I mean, there's the trigger could be you watch somebody choke. The trigger could be, find this funny, Teresa, since you live in Florida, all of them seem to happen when they move to Florida. <laughs> like, I just moved here. But like the stressors of living in Florida and like the perpetuating factors can be patients are hypervigilant. If they're those people that just like are constantly assessing threats all the time, they're always on edge, like they're more likely to have functional. So I'll go through, I use those words with them. I discuss those things with them of like, do you realize that you do this? So from going back again, talking through a lot of different things, going back to treatment, education and counseling is of the utmost importance. If you don't get buy-in from these patients, unfortunately, like there's not much more that you can do. I have, unfortunately, like had many different sessions, did a lot of education and counseling. And it's a certain point if they're still like, no, there is something wrong with me, then I have to be like, I'm so sorry. Like, I don't want to not believe you. Here's some other doctors that you can go out and visit with. So it is a hard diagnosis because like half of your job is to convince them that it's functional. So if you are on the fence about it, it's probably not going to work out very well. What I love though, I mean, like I always put myself in the other side because just of every gone through with my son. And I just like, that is so reassuring though. Like, I can't tell you the amount of like professionals, doctors that I've taken to with my son and they're like, mm, it's not really a thing. Like it's short of them saying you're crazy like. And so I think like just to have somebody say, yes, you are manifesting these things. You are having these things and there's a model for this and there is a name for it. And I think just having someone tell you that you're not crazy. And yeah, it is it is very comforting. Like I, I just have so much respect for professionals that I've worked with with him that have said, you know, I'm not discounting. We can't put our finger on it. I'm not discounting your feeling at all. Let's explore these other options. And those are the people that I just have so much respect for because they don't just dismiss us and they're willing to just go through the ringer with us, you know, try to exhaust everything. And then at the end, if you still get to nothing, at least I know they tried and they didn't just say you're, you know, tough luck. I feel like too often I'm always like, you know, your body better than I do. You know, what's going better than I do. Like, so this is, you know, when the, when I see them and I have an hour or so, and I'm going through the process with them, I'm like, this is what I think so far. And I do think it's so important the way that you do that type of education and counseling. So there's like that beautiful Brene Brown work. I'm obsessed. Obviously, I think any speech pathologist we're all obsessed with her. And there's a beautiful YouTube video, just like Brene Brown empathy. And it talks about sympathy versus empathy. Have you seen it? Yeah. And so the animal is up at the top looking down at somebody in the hole and they're like, hey, like, what's wrong with you? Like, Oh, sorry that that's happening to you versus like true empathy is climbing down into the hole and talking to them one to one. And so I think if I did this type of work and I was standing up talking down to them and being like, oh, no, 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 this is what it is. I'm the expert at this. So this is what's happening. And like. That's that's counseling 101. Counseling 101 is you have to meet the patient with where it's at. Sometimes I'm spending a ton of time the first day trying to get some of the buy-in and some of them I'm like, hey, you know what? Give me a try. If it's not good, that's fine. I think I can help you, but like give it a try. If it doesn't work out, that's okay. But I don't want to give up on you. Yeah, I hate I hate that model of like talking down to so, like Yeah. I can't tell you the amount of therapists that I fired for my son only because they would say like 
this is what I see and this is what we have to do. And this is the outcomes it's going to get. But I'm like, okay, first of all, I know that you're seeing that. I'm not seeing that. Second of all, those things don't matter to us and our family and our family dynamics. You don't have my buy-in. And also my son has this really bizarre condition that nobody really knows what it is. So I really don't know how you can convince me that you're going to get these out. Yeah. <laughs> so like, I know it's just very easy for me to be like, okay, no, you're not working with us anymore. As opposed to somebody who comes in and says, look, I don't know if this is going to work. I don't know, but I'm, I'm here to help willing to walk through the fire with you. You know, let's navigate some of this stuff. Let's talk about some of this stuff. Those are the people that I just have so much respect for because Nobody knows, you know, all this stuff is so crazy. Medicine is so, is so crazy. Nothing is, is guaranteed. So. And it's changing so much. I mean, again, I like, I feel like this entire podcast, people are going to be like, wait, so what do I, <laughs> you know, and it, cause it keeps changing. Functional neurological disorder was just claimed in 2022. Before then it was conversion disorder. Before that it was hysteria. Before the 1980s, we would call these people hysterical. Like, <laughs> I'm laughing because I mean, that's me on a daily basis. So, yes, nailed it. Okay. It's so true. <laughs> oh my God. And then my, my other favorite story, like historically. So if, if anybody loves to like get into the history of medicine. So there's a Raynor at all, R-A-Y-N-O-R. Oh, and, and Baslett's actually just two authors. It's 2021. They do like the historical perspective of this. And one of my favorite stories is back in the day, they believed that these disorders were caused by a wandering womb and that it was a wandering womb because it the woman had not like birthed a baby yet. And so your womb was angry because you haven't had a baby yet, you were infertile. And so that wandering womb was like going around causing all these symptoms. And so like the treatment was to have a baby. I think, how, like, I don't know, in two years from now, like everyone's gonna be like, no, it's not functional. Now it's disorders of gut brain interaction like this. You got to keep up with it. Like it's constantly changing. And you have to be humble and like, okay, okay, being wrong, like, okay, like, constantly learning obviously within a realm like that's what that's what's so hard in our field like at the same time you'd be wrong while you like well don't kill the patient like <laughs> like at the same time well and I think that is the tough part too it is like there's so much to know right I mean you rattle off so many GI conditions right so many esophageal conditions could be oropharyngeal it could just be oral it could be inefficiency it could be anything right you could be the smartest SLP in the world and know every possible condition and what it looks like, but it may not be any of those. And you've got to be, I mean, no pun intended, but you've got to swallow your pride to, <laughs> to realize that you may, you may just have to go about this a different way. So no, exactly. I think as you go longer in your career, the best thing that you can understand is how little, you know, before 2019, I didn't look at the esophagus once, Right. And now it's a huge part of what I do and, and like the interplay and all of those types of things. Yeah, I'm constantly learning and constantly questioning things, constantly looking back. But if there is, again, I do think that the best advice, you've got to find your thing at the time, throw yourself in it. The best way to throw yourself in it is to present on it. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I love that, Jamie. That's so funny because I've like, I've been asked, I've been invited to present on different topics and I'm like, I don't know enough about that to get up there and humiliate myself. But I love, I love that reframe. Like, okay. Like if these people think I know enough about it, like surely I can do enough research too. If you're interested in it, if you're exposed to it, 
and you want to know more about it, you're going to take it from the audience perspective at that point, instead of taking it from like the ivory tower expert, I know everything. And so when you take it from the audience perspective, you're literally going, okay, what do I want to know? Well, I want to know X, Y, and Z. Okay. So now I'm going to go scour the research and I'm going to take all of this literature and then siphon it down to digestible information. So I always think that the work that I do is that I did all the, like, and I mean, goodness, the work that you do and like all of your team does is taking so much information and trying to siphon it down to a digestible amount. So yeah, putting it in a PowerPoint, I think it, like, it's also like pictorial. It's, it's a lot more helpful. Well, I know we've bounced around, but I did start telling you about treatment. I should probably finish that, right? Because you know everybody always hears, how do you diagnose something, right? Like, right, this is how you diagnose this. And then they don't tell you how to treat it. So education and counseling of the utmost important. Cannot push that enough. The second piece is talks about arousal modification is that's a term that I got from gastropsychology when they work with functional disorders. Arousal modification is literally diaphragmatic breathing and like some stretches, anything to kind of do to bring down the tension and the stress. One of my patients, that that one that I was talking about earlier, doing two-minute breathing sessions, every time her sensations were starting, her like discomfort was starting, was like the deal breaker for us. So every time that she recognized the sensations that would like escalate bigger and bigger and bigger and like would turn into like pretty much panic attacks. And a lot of these people absolutely will also have panic attacks. By doing that, we were able to work on it. Diaphragmatic breathing, tons of really good research there and really teach it though. I think at least with my students, but I also have seen this outside with just the typical clinician. It's like, oh yeah, I know how to do diaphragmatic breathing. Okay. Show me, teach me, show me how you teach. And it's like, oh yeah, you just tell them to breathe through their belly and like, go for it. Like I take the time there and make sure they get it and, you know, really build off of that outside. And then of course, Christina Kong has great research in muscle tension dysphagia. And there's a lot of like circumlaryngeal massage. There's some research about like some voice therapy techniques, anything again, like if you see tension, what can you do to bring it down? For me, it's mostly the diaphragmatic breathing and in some light stretches, unless there's really that additional muscle tension component. The last is the the fun part, which is that biofeedback and feeding. So what that means is like, do you have, and again, I'm saying this, you don't have to have this, but if you have it, you can use surface electromyography, you can use fees, you can use the images from MBS, but use some level of biofeedback and try to retrain their swallow. So undo all of those inefficient movements that they had. So if they're head jutting, if they're swishing around the food in their mouth for minutes as add on end if they're squeezing their larynx like for a really long time post the swallow. Any of those behaviors that you see that go, these are not serving you, trying to undo them and repattern them in a in a more efficient way. Working then through a food hierarchy, I love the work in avoidant restrictive food intake disorders. So there's if you look up Thomas and Eddie ARFID, there is a booklet. It's a PDF. It's free. And it talks about the different types of our like avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. I only work with patients who have ARFID related to like concern for consequences of eating, specifically like fear of eating, but there's also different types. There's like textures and things like that. 
working with them and working up their fear scale. So there's a beautiful like temperature gauge on there and it's like zero to a hundred and they fill it out based off of where their foods are. So it's kind of like, I'm sure I don't do pediatric feeding, but I feel like there's a lot of similarities here of working through that with them. So if you're bringing them into therapy, I've had patients, I'm like, Hey, bring food in. They bring steak in. I was like, how do you feel about this steak? Oh, I'm at a hundred right now. Hmm. Let's start with a 30. Let's start, let's start with like something that you're a little uncomfortable with, but not at a hundred. We're not ready for that yet. So yeah. So working through that. So education, counseling, arousal modification, systematic working up a hierarchy with foods using biofeedback as able, but mirror is biofeedback, right? So be as fancy or as less fancy as you want. I think anybody at any area can definitely work on this. But I do imagine that this is something you're going to see the most in outpatient. Although in neurology literature, it's like 10% of acute cares and 16% of outpatient is what, you know, makes up a neurology like business of how much they see these functional disorders. So, yeah, it, it, it is. And I, and I love that biofeedback piece. I think you hear it. I think people say like, oh, use fees for biofeedback. And it's like, okay, yeah, I mean, I get it, but I love how you just framed it as part of the framework, like what it actually can show you and how you can use it and, and how you can essentially retrain the swallow to do the things that are serving the patient and get rid of the things that are not serving them. So thank you for that. I think that was great. Yeah, no, the, I have a patient I'm working on with right now. And we did the first session was SEMG. And it was really like, let's do relaxation, swallow, relaxation. He did great. Second therapy didn't need it. Now, next therapy, he just is really hypersensitive to things in the back of his throat. So I'm like, you know what? If you're okay with it, we're going to scope you. We're going to use the fees. And I want you to be able to see what's going on in the back of the throat as we go along. Again, I'm very, very fortunate to just like have those tools. And I do think I could do this therapy without either of them. But since I have them, you know, add, I, I always think that they're the cherry on the top. Like it is not the banana or the ice cream. <laughs> Anything else, Jamie? Is that we sort of cover your treatment gamut? No, I think, yeah, I think that that's the basis of the treatment gamut. I think read those couple of articles so that that way you feel, add that education and counseling component, but yeah. Awesome. I love this. Thank you so much. This has been so wonderful. Anything else you want to share with the people? Any final thoughts? Any, any, I know you've, you're working on tons of so share away. Yeah. Oh yeah, sure. So if this was not digestible because it was a, I was talking in circles at all. I did a three-part series on MedBridge that the live webinar is December 13th. I don't know when this is posting, but then the recordings are going to be available on there. So check that out if you have access to that. Otherwise, my contact information is on there. You can look up me up on social media. People that do know that I totally respond. And like I said, if you have a patient like this or supergastric belching or aerophagia, you know, that's so random, totally open for an email or a DM, if you will. <laughs> you know, going one step at a time and find your people. One of my favorite things to tell people is don't be the smartest person in the room. If you're in the smartest person in the room, then you're in the wrong room. So. I love that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it.
And that's a wrap for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email list so that you'll never miss another episode. If you do like what you hear, then please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or share it on social media with your friends and colleagues because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week.